For I am Blastar, king of a limitless domain, emperor of all existence. Beside my power, all else is as nothingness. Yet cosmic monarch though I be, I have been felled by the foulest of fates. Where is there one who would challenge my majesty? Their legions are few, their fortunes are feeble. Condemned am I by cruel conspirators who fly the vapid flag of what they would call decency and justice. Condemned by them to roam the endless wilderness of negative space. And what am I cast upon these deserted shores of the cosmos, bereft of planets I might plunder, stripped of solar systems worthy of this scourging, without a single challenge to contest my might. I am chaff, I am dross, I am less than naught. I crave the lifeblood of combat, and I must settle for silence and solitude. The roar of battle, the din of routed enemies, was meat and drink to me, but here must I feast upon desolation and dark despair. Welcome to Artifacts of Infinity, where we dive into the infinite abyss of Marvel's cosmic universe. I'm Jonathan Hudson. And I'm Everett Christensen. This is episode 7, and today we'll be covering Fantastic Four Volume 1, numbers 62 and 63, and X-Men Volume 1, number 53. This marks the first time we'll be backtracking a bit. At the end of our Captain Marvel coverage, our heroes plunged into the negative zone, so it's about time we take a little detour and discuss it by going over one of our favorite antagonists, Blastar, the living bomb burst! Now, I was really hoping that we could wait a little bit longer before covering any of this, but talking about the negative zone will be largely inevitable moving forward. We're going to try and keep the Annihilus-specific coverage in the pocket, though, in anticipation of the day that we finally catch up to, quote, modern cosmic marvel, unquote. So let's dive right in with Fantastic Four 62 and One Shall Save Him. Written by Stan Lee, pencils by Jack Kirby, inking by Joe Sano, colors by Stan Goldberg, lettering by Sam Rosen, edited by Stan Lee, with the cover by Jack Kirby and Joe Sano. So, in the foreground of this cover, we have Reed body stretching around to wrap a small asteroid, while next to him is a figure cloaked in classic Kirby Crackle-filled explosions emanating from the fingertips of a third and final figure, that of the monstrous Blastar. Blastar looks like a cross between a werewolf and a gorilla, though some people call his head a lion's head. Uh, he is wearing a tunic and shorts, and they're kind of purple. All three figures are floating above an Earth-like blue and green planet. We open on a recap box that's just too useful not to use here. In a desperate effort to save Sue, Ben, and Johnny from the Sandman's murderous attack, Reed Richards hurled open the fateful door, leading to the dreaded negative zone. His daring action routed their enemy, but Reed himself was caught in the sudden surge of unleashed force and carried away beyond any hope of rescue. Now, Ben is using the trans-barrier phone to reach into the negative zone and call Reed directly on his wrist communicator to find out how to save him. But Reed tells the rest of the Fantastic Four to give up, there's no chance of rescue, and he wishes his old friends goodbye 
and leaves a message for Sue that he loved her and he will always love her. And there's the read that I know. Something I really liked is the way that Ben is really clinging to, you know, Reed's usual fallback of there's always a way we just got to think through it and find it. I really liked that particularly. Yeah, Ben believes that Reed can come up with a solution to this, but Reed is pretty out of it, probably by being in an antimatter universe. Definitely. Now, the negative zone was first seen in the last few pages of Fantastic Four 51, and from that, we recognize where Reed is. He's in the Earth's explosive belt, where the negative particles of the zone's asteroids collide with the positive particles of the Earth, causing localized annihilation. And everyone is absolutely beside themselves. They're wrought with grief over the apparent loss of Reed, when suddenly Crystal and Lockjaw of the Inhumans teleport in. Crystal asks what's wrong from this super cutely inconsolable Johnny Storm, and we're treated to an incredible two-page spread of the scanner, and we get one of those visions where the art style changes dramatically, like from the um, the Galactus stuff, uh, where they must have used, like, clippings from other art and put them together and it's really a very busy cosmic background it's a really effective way to make you take a take a closer look at what's going on i wish this technique was still used i agree wholeheartedly though the fantastic four are powerless to save reed crystal reckons that the inhumans are not so she teleports away to recruit some help as an aside, this is the same era where Sue is able to use her force field to pilot an entire plane through the unfailing vibro screen. So I'm not really buying that Sue can't just fix this whole situation on her own. At that moment, in the negative zone, there's some delightfully art deco looking space people that are ridding themselves of dangerous cargo. Their prisoner is apparently incredibly powerful and dangerous, so much so that these people cannot slay him, but must instead attempt to dispose of him in the annihilating debris belt while he is under sedation. We get more panels of the weird and wild cosmic backgrounds from the negative zone as we learn that the prisoner has adhered to the same rock as Mr. Fantastic. Reed pontificates about how his death is at hand. What a pity it all must end so soon, before I've had a chance to unravel the myriad mysteries of this strange, uncanny universe. But there will be others, those who come after me, and they will unlock secrets of the cosmos one by one. For the mind of a man is the greatest key in the world, the key which one day may open the door to immortality. And each of us, in his own way, does what he can for those who will follow. That's the only true legacy we can leave to those we love, that we've made the world a little better than we found it. Meanwhile, on an island off the coast of Europe, we see an army attempting to invade with an atomic nullifier and ray cannon, when suddenly, out of the sky, flies Black Bolt, leader of the Inhumans. He handily destroys the cannon and swoops into the melee, where Gorgon, Medusa, and Karnak are just demolishing the soldiers on the beach. Enter Triton. He's a green-scaled inhuman with fish fins on his head, 
bright purple shorts, and metal cuffs on his arms and legs. And he's going after the nuclear submarine by himself, and with one blow breaches their reactor room, saving the island from nuclear attack and sending these baddies packing. Once the battle is over, Crystal entreats Black Bolt to send help to save Reed. Black Bolt nods, and Medusa comments in a really bombastic way that's a little silly. Black Bolt has nodded! Reed Richards will be saved! Now, I understand that his wife translates most of his sign language, but even for a nod... Black Bolt picks one of the Inhumans to go on the mission, but we're left in suspense as to whom. I particularly loved the stance of full attention. I was dying reading that at work in the break room. <laughs> anyway, meanwhile, back at the Baxter building, Ben Grimm gets so anxious that he destroys the wall scanner so he doesn't have to watch his best friend die. His timing couldn't be worse, as at that moment Lockjaw teleports back in with Crystal and Triton. Everyone's a bit confused, but Triton explains that deepest space, whether positive or negative, is like a vast, endless ocean, and he's able to maneuver under such conditions. And I'm just not going to question this one. It's nonsense, but it plays out like dream logic and is really cool. So, Triton makes his way through the space-time chamber and breaches the barrier between the negative zone and our own. We're treated to another set of incredible cosmic Kirby sights, including some bizarre space squids. Triton states that he can locate a single strand of seaweed within the bottomless ocean, and now he's using that skill to find a human in the swirling sea of subspace. Now, Triton flies around with what seems like an air gun of some kind. It creates a very unique look for his propulsion, and I really liked that. He finds Reed just in time as the asteroid's plunging into the Annihilation Zone. Triton fishes Reed out just in the nick of time, however, and at this moment, the figure in the adhesion suit bursts free. It's Blastar! Shooting explosions from his fingertips, he, cr he chases after our heroes, looking for a new world to ravage. Back at the Baxter building, Reed and Triton triumphantly return from the rescue mission, but are uh, unaware that Blastar has entered behind them. The living Bomburst immediately heads to a window, where he's picked up by a giant hand that belongs to Sandman. There is a nice note here about automatic translators being common to explain why Blastar immediately presses Sandman into his service. Now, Sandman's been menacing the Fantastic Four for a while. He's a villain with the ability to turn his body into sand, and uh, he can control it into different shapes and masses and tools, and uh, he's wearing a pretty wild green outfit here. And so, with Reed and Sue hugging, Crystal and Johnny step out of the room, leaving Ben sitting by himself saying, Love, yuck, is just a lot of mush. At least, that's what a slob like me has to keep telling himself. Poor Ben, hang in there, guy. Love is in the cards for you, too. So, next up, we have Fantastic Four 63. Blastar, the Living Bomb Burst. It was written by Stan Lee, 
penciled by Jack Kirby, inking by Joe Sino, colors by Stan Goldberg, lettered by Sam Rosen, edited by Stan Lee, with a cover by Jack Kirby and Joe Sino. Blastar and Sandman mix it up on this cover with the Fantastic Four. Sandman has huge sand arms reaching out to grapple Ben and Johnny while Reed's holding some kind of device as he gets blasted. Sue is just kind of there. I guess it's a product of the time, I suppose. This issue picks up mere seconds later as a huge explosion crashes in from the roof into the room containing Triton, Ben, Reed, and Sue. Reed stretches up through a hole in the roof, only to be immediately blasted back down by an explosion. Triton is the first to fly into action, and he hops over the fingertip explosions of Blastar and just starts wailing on the monstrous foe. Blastar is no slouch, however, because though he's never fought with his fists before, he manages to lay Triton out with one mighty spock. Sandman is concerned that Blastar would give him the same treatment, but assures the living bomb burst that they make too good of a team for him to betray him. Snatching up the denizen out of the neg- negative zone, Sandman makes his way down the Baxter building using adhesive sand, which is a pretty cool image. Once on the ground, the pair immediately start battle with more Kirby contraption-wielding police. Johnny and Crystal are there on the scene, and it doesn't take long before the Human Torch bounds into action. Sandman, worried that his position with Blastar is kind of untenable, he lashes out at the Torch, flinging granite boulders at him. Blastar's fed up with this, but doesn't get a chance to do much before Ben Grimm, the ever-loving thing, joins the fray as well. Sandman beats a quick retreat, and thunderous battle ensues as Blastar and Grimm wallop each other. Back in the lab, Reed finishes up saving Triton and rushes to his cabinet to find a gadget that may turn the tide of battle against this invader from beyond. Sandman, who's escaped into the sewer ambushes Ben from underground, wrapping him up in a fell mattress of sand, and sends them both rolling towards the river. Blastar, angry that his fray's been stolen, aggresses upon Crystal, only to be blasted back by a tornado. We don't really get to see a whole lot of her elemental powers in these issues, but she's quite potent herself. At this point, Blastar is shocked to learn that most Earthlings have superpowers, which, considering his experience... Yeah, I I get where he's coming from. He blasts Johnny, who then throws his explosion right back, but it's a draw and neither of them are gaining hand in this uh, exchange. Sandman rolls Thing into the river, standing on a dock. He declares that even the Thing would have been rendered unconscious by all that spinning, but little does he know that the fresh water's woken Ben up. So Ben destroys the pier from below and then finishes off Sandman to this caption. Ever see a picture no sound effect could do justice to? Well, you're looking at one right here, true believer. Back with Blastar, Reed and Sue join the fray, and after a failed attempt, they manage to get the disabling helmet onto the living bomb burst, and Reed knocks him out. So they send him back to the negative zone. And finally, we come to X-Men 53, The Rage of Blastar, 
written by Arnold Drake, pencils by Barry Windsor Smith, inking by Michael D., lettering by Herb Cooper, edited by Stan Lee, cover by Barry Windsor Smith, and Mike Esposito. So on this cover, Blastar stands in the foreground, bludgeoning Beast and sending Cyclops flying with a backhand. Iceman, Angel, and Marvel Girl react to this, but this cover strangely lacks a lot of the charm normally associated with Barry Windsor Smith covers. We open on a much more loquacious Blastar than we've seen thus far. He monologues for quite some time about his desolation, despair, and his desire to conquer Earth, which we covered in the opening. Somewhere, somehow, these chains of the physical laws that bind me shall be burst asunder. Some key, as yet unknown to me, shall turn the lock and free my spirit and my rage. Then I shall fling myself upon my tormentors and grind them all and all they call their own into driest dust. Vengeance, merciless and beyond any yet conceived, shall be mine. Blastar shall be avenged! And, and that also, though, right there, is why I love Blastar so much. Is because he'll say stuff like that with a straight face. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So we move to the X-Men, where Jean Grey, Marvel Girl, is working with some machinery that will change her thoughts into radio waves. Beast, Hank McCoy, and Cyclops, Scott Summers, are present for this experiment. It seems like some sort of proto-cerebro of sorts... The circuits overload, and there's an explosion that Jean Grey faints from, and there is something soaking up all of the energy from the atomic generator. Let's take a moment to just catch you guys up on Silver Age X-Men. A lot of you may be familiar, but at this point, the team consists of Cyclops as the leader, who is Scott Summers, with Beast Hank McCoy, Iceman Bobby Drake, Angel, Warren Worthington III, and Marvel Girl Jean Grey, and it's the Dark Ages of X-Men, if we're honest. Yeah, this is a period of time where the creative teams are cycling fairly often, and also... Like, Professor X is dead here. And this is really part of the lead-up to the point where X-Men goes into what are essentially reruns for a few years. So, this story isn't really the best, but it's the third appearance of Blastar, and it's still pretty fun. One other thing of note, uh, Barry Windsor Smith's art is usually very enjoyable, and it is off on this issue. I'm not sure if it has to do with the inker or if he was just off his game on this, but the art is pretty rough. Yeah, I think that it might be that this is also just like his very early work, and that as time goes on, he just gets better better and better because even a few years from this he's doing captain marvel covers that i thought were really great yeah he definitely does get better as he goes at this moment blastar is hurtling through the anti-cosmos he connects to the crackling overload of the machine and uses that energy to cross over into the positive universe Beast is there, and when Blastar declares himself Master of Earth, 
Hank's like, I want proof. And for his trouble, gets viciously blasted. Scott scoops up Gene, and as Blastar begins to menace them, Angel swoops in to save the day. He's surprised, however, as Blastar uses his exploding fingers to rocket himself into the air to deliver Warren a devastating blow. Scott, seeing this, uses his optic blasts to do much the same. It's Flyclops. It's canonical Flyclops. He <laughs> rocket jumps his way up to Blastar and then punch dimensions the antimatter man, buying Warren some much needed time. Meanwhile, Iceman and Marvel Girl rouse Hank from this stupor, and Jean Grey has an idea. This triggers the worst interaction when Bobby says, Sometimes I think we made our biggest goof when we gave women the vote. Okay, brain lady, what's this big notion of yours? Yikes, Bobby, that's terrible. This, yeah, that exchange is really not okay, and that's part of why we call this the dark age of X-Men. Definitely. So, Jean gets Bobby to make some ice mannequins that she's going to puppet using her telekinesis. Using these hastily created ice golems, she manages to beat Blastar back towards Professor X's machine, where the water from the golem seems to have caused Blastar to be fatally electrocuted. There isn't much more to say here other than Scott gives this really absurd speech. Blastar's basic energy was evil, pure, unadulterated hate, and wherever men live with hate in their hearts, Blastar lives there too. Which... what? Yeah, I was flabbergasted uh, at reading this. It... I don't... I don't get it still, but like, okay, I guess he's trying to be poetic. It's it's like a real Christmas story kind of vibe that makes no sense whatsoever. Uh, if you want to read the issues we covered today, you can find them collected in Essential Fantastic Four Volume 3, Marvel Masterworks Fantastic Four Volume 7, Fantastic Four Epic Collections Volume 4, Fantastic Four Omnibus Volume 3, Essential Classic X-Men Volume 2, Marvel Masterworks The X-Men Volume 5, X-Men Epic Collections Volume 3, and X-Men Omnibus Volume 2, as well as digitally on Comixology and Marvel Unlimited. Or you can always ask your local library. If you would like to know more about Blastar, his origin is covered in a lot more detail in Marvel 2-in-1, number 75, and also he is a major player in the Annihilation events, uh, pretty much all of them, uh, and especially in this most latest one, Annihilation Scourge. And one of the reasons why we didn't cover Marvel 2-in-1 number 75 instead of this kind of out-of-place X-Men issue is that you should all go read current X-Men. If you're not reading X-Men right now, consider this my hearty endorsement. Please go read Hicksmen. It's way too good. I, I also endorse that. Uh... Big shout out to Crushing Crisis, 
With Comic Book Database gone, his work is some of the most comprehensive in helping me put together the lists of these books that the further the collections come from. If sacred places are spared the ravages of war, then make all places sacred. And if the holy people are to be kept harmless from war, then make all peoples holy. This has been Artifacts of Infinity. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Everett. And this was edited by Everett. We will see you in the infinite cosmos.